So we are in Romans 12, verse 1 today. If you would turn there with me, if you have a Bible in your lap. If not, there's one in the pew, and there's also going to be the verse on the screen behind you. Now let me just start, and those of you who know me know, maybe I like history a little too much, but hopefully you'll stick with me on this, okay? Those of you that that wasn't your favorite subject in school. I think most of us want to believe that if we had lived in Germany in the 1930s, when Hitler came to power and the Nazis rose to the top, that we would have stood against them. We would have been brave. We would have been principled. We would, we would have refused to go along with the crowd. And yet, I consider the fact that in Germany, four out of five German pastors did not resist. In fact, some many supported the Nazis completely, and most said nothing against them. Uh, they, they preached what the government told them to preach. The Nazis said, don't preach out of the Old Testament. That's way too Jewish. Uh, don't preach the passages that talk about loving your enemies or forgiving others or, or, uh, or, or compassion for those who are, who are the least of these. Don't, no, stick to the things that help us, that, that support our war effort. And, and keep in mind, the German church was a state church. Well, we're, we forget this. We live in America where we have religious freedom but, uh, and, and separation of church and state. In Germany, the government controlled the church. So if you were a pastor, it was in your best interest to bless the government, right? To agree with what they did and what they said. Otherwise, you could lose your job. On the other hand, if you said the right things, you could get a, a better parish than the one you're in now. Uh, plus... On top of all of that, on top of all the, the, the financial reasons and career reasons, keep in mind, most of the moral and conservative and patriotic Germans thought that the Nazis were doing great. Because, okay, maybe Hitler's a little extreme, maybe he says some things that are embarrassing and acts in ways that we don't approve of, but he doesn't, he doesn't smoke or drink and he cracks down on the, the, the immorality that was tolerated by the previous administration. And he's, he's raised, our, he's, he's rebuilt our country's military and he's made us proud to be Germans again. And so if you as a pastor spoke against that, that felt like treason, right? That felt like you were a traitor to your country. It took a whole lot of courage, the kind of courage that most of us rarely ever display to go against that tide. Now, there, was, there were a few who had that kind of courage. One, uh, I want to give you a quote from a German pastor in those days. And think about saying this. Replace the word Germany with the word America, and you'll see how courageous this was. He said, Christians in Germany will have to face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that a future Christian civilization may survive, or else willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying our civilization and any true Christianity. I mean, he literally said, we need to root for us to lose the war so that Christianity can survive. This guy's name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you already guessed where I was going with that. Young Lutheran minister, at first he opposed the Nazis on the radio. He spoke against them until they cut off his radio signal. And then he ran an underground seminary against the government rules and outside of their uh, regulations. He had groups of men and women that he would meet with and train in the true gospel, not the Nazi-approved version. Then that was canceled once it was discovered. And then he was contacted by a group of army officers who were plotting to assassinate Hitler. If you've ever seen 
seen the movie Valkyrie several years ago with Tom Cruise. Uh, that's what this is about. Now, Bonhoeffer doesn't appear in the movie, but he was part of the plot. He actually was a spy on behalf of that group doing espionage work. He was discovered by the Gestapo. He was arrested. He was sent to Flossenburg concentration camp. There, sort of like a modern day Joseph, he so impressed the guards that they started smuggling things to him, including letters from his family. And one guard even, even concocted a plot to help him escape, but he refused because he was afraid that if he escaped, they would come after his parents and his siblings and his fiance. And so in April 1945, he was hanged two weeks before the camp was liberated. His last words were, this is the end, but for me, it is the beginning of life. Now, the biggest mistake the Nazis made in, in terms of Bonhoeffer was they didn't let him pastor a church because if they'd, let him a pastor, if they'd let him pastor a church, he would have been working too hard to write books. And because he didn't have a job, he had time to write. And it, it was his writing that was more, po more powerful than anything he ever did. His most famous book during this time was called The Cost of Discipleship. There may be a few of you who've read this. It's, it's I mean, even today, 80 years later, it'll, it'll wipe the floor with you. It is so strong. It's, it's a book about the Sermon on the Mount, but the first chapter, the intro is what most people remember because that's when Bonhoeffer talks about what he calls cheap grace. Cheap grace is the kind of Christianity that says it doesn't really matter how you live as long as you believe the right things, as long as you show up on Sunday mornings, you, can, you don't have to change your values, you don't have to change your lifestyle, you just have to, you just have to say the right things and, and, and sign on this dotted line and pray this prayer and you go to heaven when you die. Here's a quote from that section. He says, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And he would have said, the reason so many German Christians fail to stand up to pure evil is because they had been discipled in cheap grace instead of the real gospel. And I wonder what he would say if he were alive today in America. I wonder what we would say about American churches today. See, we're at the start of a new year, and, and I have excitement in my heart. I hope you do too about what God has planned for us that only He knows. And Conroe, we live, in a, we live in a city, in an area that's continuing to grow. People are continuing to move here. Yes, I know it takes a long time to get down 105. I understand. But that's also exciting for us. And one of the things it means is if we are doing anything for the Lord at all, we should see our church continue to grow numerically. That, that's one of the blessings of living in a growing city. But the point is not to get big. I hope we do. I hope we continue to see new people join our church. That's a sign we're doing God's will. But that's not the goal. If that's the goal, it, I can tell you how we do it. Preach cheap grace and we'll fill the pews very quickly. That's the way to grow a church if all you care about is size. But actually our job is something different. Our job is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And that's harder. And that kind of limits the number of people who will answer the call. And so that's the reason I'm starting the year with Romans 12. Because I can't think of a better chapter in the Bible to explain what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what we're trying to do. And in fact, the first verse, which is what we're going to talk about today, Romans 12.1, the first verse lays it out for us. If you want a one-sentence explanation of what it means to be a disciple, this is it. You ready? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let me walk through that real quickly. The word therefore, I think you all know, it means that you should, he's saying, based on what I've already said, this is true. So he's saying, based on the first 11 chapters of Romans, now obviously, it would take me months to get through the first 11 chapters of Romans. I'm not going to claim to be able to sum it all up in, in 30 seconds, but let me give it a shot. All right. Here's what Romans 1 through 11 is about. It's about three things. Number one, we're all sinners, which means on our own, we are disqualified from God's family. We cannot be a part of the kingdom. We are sinners. And yet, number two, Jesus died in our place. He lived the life we should have lived. And then he died the death that we deserve to die. He took our place. Therefore, number three, we can be justified through Jesus Christ. And justified is a beautiful word in scripture because what it means is that when God looks at you and me, who, let's face it, we're all still sinful. None of us are perfect yet. In fact, you have my invitation. Any perfect people, go ahead and leave. You don't have any need for anything I'm going to say today. Yeah, you're all still sitting, right? We understand. And yet, sinners though we are, God looks at us through the filter of Jesus Christ and sees sinless perfection. That's justification. That's good news, right? And so Paul says, therefore, because of all that good news, I appeal to you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. I'll get to that part in a moment. I want to next talk about, it says, that's your spiritual worship. That word spiritual can also be translated reasonable, logical. What it means is, if Jesus has done this for us, it's only logical that we would do this for him. Any reasonable person, if they find out what the Lord of the universe has done for them, would say, therefore, I will do this. It's not, it's not unheard of. It's not, put it this way. This is not a verse for the outstanding Christians, the varsity level Christians, whereas the rest of us say, I'm happy on the JV. I'm happy to sit the bench. No, this is, this is every true believer should want this. And what is it? It is to be a living sacrifice which is an odd term, really. It's an oxymoron. It's, it, it's, like, it's like saying jumbo shrimp, right? It's two words that don't go together. It's like working vacation. It's like controlled chaos. It's like airline food, right? Um, I'm glad you got that. Some of you have flown. I, I didn't know if that would fly. So um, Paul, Paul is, is, remember, he's coming from a Jewish perspective where their worship wasn't sitting in pews and singing songs and listening to sermons. Their worship was, I bring the best bull in my herd and I offer it to the Lord, or the best ram in my flock, or the best, or if I'm a poor man, I go out and I, I trap two pigeons and I take them to the temple. I, I offer the Lord my best, the best I have, and that is my worship. What Paul was saying is that we're, we're in a new period now where our worship is something different. It is a living sacrifice. That means two differences. First of all, there's no literal killing. You notice we don't offer uh, burnt offerings in our church in, in, in these days. We don't, we don't bring rams or bulls or goats or anything like that. I've got three cats. No, no I'm not going to go there. Um, the, we don't kill anything anymore because Jesus is our once and for all sacrifice. Yeah, amen indeed. And the second difference is it's not a one-time thing. When you offered the best you had to the Lord, your sins were paid for and you walked away. 
the living sacrifice you offer is something you have to offer again and again because I didn't make this up. I love this though. The problem with a living sacrifice is it has a tendency to crawl off the altar. We offer ourselves to the Lord one day and tomorrow or next week or next month, we find ourselves totally sold out to some other idol. We have to continually come back to God and continually renew that living sacrifice to him. I know that when I was growing up, I thought what it meant to be a Christian was you go to church. That's how I serve the Lord is I go to church and I, 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 some, I fight to pay attention, to mean the words I sing and, and to pay attention during the sermon. And if I've done that, I can go home and I can check that box and say, I've done my duty as a Christian. And I know that in, in heaven, there's some angel with a chick clipboard that says, aha, you know, Jeff was in church and that's what it means to be a Christian. And then later I learned, no, you go to church. That's not your responsibility as a Christian. You go to church to learn how to do what you're called to do as a Christian. Going to church is what equips you to live the Christian life, to be a living sacrifice. And that's something you never stop honing and refining. So what is a living sacrifice? What is a living sacrifice? It's summed up, I think, in this. It's saying, Lord, I want to be completely yours. Whatever you ask of me, the answer is always yes. And this is, those are my words. But notice, I, I don't say, Lord, I am completely yours. Because let's face it, none of us in this room are completely his yet. We've all got parts of ourselves that we're holding back. And that's why we continue to sin. It's Lord, I want to be completely yours. I want to reach that state someday where everything in me says yes to you every single time. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. So let me, let me give you some examples. Uh, here's an example from, from the life of Bonhoeffer, and then I'll, I'll get off of him. But when Bonhoeffer uh, was in the midst of the, the 30s and early 40s and, and the Nazis were in power and he was getting an increasing amounts of trouble with them, he had been to America before. Early in his academic career, he had gone and studied for a semester in the United States. And so his friends in America wrote to him and said, listen, you need to get out of there. We've heard about what you're getting into and you're going to get yourself killed. So we've got a job for you at Union Seminary. You can just come and teach Bible and you can ride out this storm and Hitler will be overthrown and you can go back to Germany when that's happened. And he actually went for two weeks. He was in the United States. And at the end of two weeks, he said, I, I've got to go back. This is not my place. My place is in Germany. My place is with my people. My place is standing up to evil, not running away from it. Now, he was 36 years old when he died. He was engaged to be married. Think about what he gave up. He gave up the chance to be married, to have kids, to pastor churches, to write more books, to do more good things, to experience life. He put all of that in God's hands and said, and said I know where I belong. And if I die, I die. That's to be a living sacrifice. Now, let me give you some examples that are a little closer to home. Now, these are completely hypothetical. Don't be trying to decide who I'm talking about. These are hypothetical people, all right? So first of all, imagine a woman who has someone who she thought was a friend who turns on her. Some of you have experienced this. No, no pain quite like having your, your supposed best friend betray you. So here's this person out there speaking ugly things about her, spreading rumors about her, gossiping about her, and, and all their mutual friends come to this woman and say, what do you think about her now? 
doesn't she make you angry? Don't, what do you think? And she could say, listen, I know everything about her. I know the things about her she doesn't want you to know. Let me tell you what she's really like. But instead, being a living sacrifice means she says, you know, the truth is, I still love her. I don't know why she's doing what she's doing, but I'm praying that she and I will reconcile someday. I'm praying for her good. There's a second example. Imagine a young man and all of his friends are hooking up with, with attractive young women. And he is that guy who is choosing to try to live according to the Bible's commands for sexuality. And so as a result, he watches as all his friends look like they're having the time of their lives while all those young women treat him like a little brother or a best friend. And yet he says to himself, I believe that God's commands are not burdensome, that he has given us these commands for our good. And so I'm going to follow them, believing that that's going to lead to greater happiness for me. And even if it didn't, I'm going to do it because Jesus laid down his life for me. And therefore I owe him everything. And there's a third example. And that's anytime any person of any age says, I have dreams and I have goals and I have plans. And yet I choose to put all of those behind what God has for me. And whether it's a, a young person who says, hey, this is something I'm passionate about. I'd love to be able to earn a living from it. This is my dream job. That's what I want to pursue. But if God says differently, if that doesn't work out, I'm going to pursue him. And if I have to earn my living as a ditch digger or a custodian in a, in a convenience store or the fry cook at, at Waffle House or whatever the case may be, I'm going to glorify God in that place. Or, or it's an older person who says, I, I'm looking at retirement ahead of me. And, and sure, I want to pursue my hobbies and I want to travel and I want to spend time with my kids and my grandkids. But, but I also know that I only have a short amount of time left where I have the physical and mental ability to really serve the Lord. So that's going to be my top priority even if it means I travel less and I golf less and I see my grandkids less, this is, I only have a short time. Retirement is, is heaven, right? I only have a short time until I, I can't do those things and can't serve the Lord anymore. Can't you see how all of those things I just mentioned, all of those things kind of feel like death because you're saying no to the things that your flesh wants in the short term. And your friends don't necessarily understand. Even your Christian friends are like, well, why would you let her talk about you that way? And, and why wouldn't you pursue these relationships? And why wouldn't you do what you want instead of what you think God wants? It feels in a way like death. You are being a living sacrifice. Now, the rest of this series, the rest of Romans 12, kind of breaks down how we live this out what it looks like in real life. But for now, and got 10 minutes left, so I'm going to give you, I'm going to address three objections. Because I know, I know myself, anytime I hear a message like this, anytime, anytime you hear a message like this, there's that part of you that says, yeah, but that sounds great, but I can't live that way. And here's why. So let me address three objections real quick. Number one, is the objection that says, I'm committed enough to Christ already. I already do enough. I am a good enough person. I don't need to do more. And that objection comes from two very different kinds of people. On the one hand, it comes from the kind of person who says, well, I don't want to become one of those fanatics. I don't want to become overly religious. 
Remember when we were in high school, and I, again, I'm going to pick on you who don't like history, but it could be any subject. Remember how if you didn't like history and the teacher got up and started talking about the Crimean War, somebody would raise their hand and go, excuse me, uh, uh, miss, is this going to be on the test? <laughs> I can tell you do remember. Because <laughs> it's like, I, I want to gauge how much I need to pay attention. If, this is, if there's no accountability for this, I'm just going to go ahead and daydream while you're talking. When we were in school, probably 90% of us, our attitude was, what's the minimum I have to do and still get out of this alive? We weren't really interested in learning the subject. We were just interested in getting through it. And that's the way a lot of us approach our Christian walk. And so when we hear a message like this, we're like, I don't need all that. Just tell me how to get to heaven when I die. Just tell me how to get a blessing once in a while when I need it, get my prayers answered. I'll leave all that other stuff for the, for the hyper-religious people. And then the other kind of person who uses this objection, I'm committed enough already, is on the opposite end of the scale. They're the, they're the self-righteous person who says, but I'm already pretty daggum good. I don't think I, you're talking to the wrong guy. Talk to him over there. Because there's a lot of us, if we're honest, the way we approach our Christian life, we're people who are driving 70 in a 55 mile an hour zone, but we're, we feel pretty good about ourselves because every once in a while we see somebody driving 90. <laughs> oh, cop's going to go after him. I'm safe. Can you remember the last time you really repented? When's the last time where you just got before the Lord and said, Lord, enough. I don't want to do this again. I'm tired. I'm tired of, of this sin in me. Not, Lord, forgive us for the many ways we fail you. Not that general thing we pray, but very specific. I'm tired. I'm sick and tired of, of being this way and I want to change. When's the last time you felt godly sorrow that leads to repentance? I know, I know it goes against every instinct we have, but once in a while it's good to just pray and say, Lord, give me some godly sorrow. It's, it's been too long since I've shed tears over my own sin. And we need that. We need that if we want to be the people we're called to be. The second objection is people who would say, well, God is just asking too much. I mean, what does he expect of us? We're only human. And to that, I want to answer with a scripture, 1 John 5, 3. God's commands are not burdensome. When it says God's commands are not burdensome, it doesn't mean they're easy to follow. What it means is they don't make our lives worse. They make our lives better. This is what a lot of people don't realize. God did not create, did not write the commands of scripture so that we could, so he could make life hard. He's not up there saying, okay, what can I do to, to put an obstacle course in front of these people and find out who the real committed folks are? And his commands come out of his love because he knows more about life than us. Funny how that works. Because he's trying to spare us pain. This is why Paul doesn't say, I command you to, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. He says, I appeal to you. I appeal to you. I, I'm begging you, try this out. Paul, Paul is every bit in my mind like a dad whose kid 
will only eat chicken McNuggets from McDonald's. And he's saying, son, won't you try the good stuff? Come on. I, I know you can live that way. You can live. You might even live past 30 if you eat nothing but McNuggets. But I mean, there's, there's steak and there's, there's, there's seafood and there's enchiladas, for goodness sake. I mean, there's so much good stuff. Please try the good stuff. That's what Paul's saying here. I appeal to you. I beg of you. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. You won't regret it. So we have, uh, I mentioned our cats a moment ago. We have, my daughter has a cat named Yuki. Yuki is the Japanese word for snow. So here's how Yuki came to be part of our family. Uh, my parents live out in the country in the house I grew up in, a house that is partially on pier and beam. There are approximately 10,000 feral cats living under that house. Um, some of you are from the country, you know what I mean. So a few years ago, my dad, my dad caught a little white kitten that lived under the house and managed to tame it. And I remember going home to visit them and he showed me this kitten. And he said, hey, you know, I, I did this for my oldest granddaughter, your daughter, Kaylee. And I said, dad, I thought you loved me. <laughs> so that's how Yuki came to be a part of our family. And he is an inside-only cat at, at his mother's insistence, um, which means he, he lacks outdoor survival skills, right? And, and which means that every once in a while, when that little fiend just darts out of the door when we're standing there deciding whether we forgot our keys or our wallet or our glasses, it's an all-family thing. We all have to run outside and try to catch him before he escapes and gets into some kind of trouble. Um, and I remember at one point I chased him for a city block, that little thing. Um, <laughs> so it was that a few months ago, my wife came home from work. She was the first one to get home from work. And she saw when she walked in the, she walked in the house and, and took off her purse and, and set down her keys. And she saw Yuki lounging on the back porch outside. And she thought, how did he get out there? No one's been home all day. That means he escaped sometime this morning when one of us was heading out the door and he's been outside all day and this little jolt of panic went through her. And that means that he probably explored the whole neighborhood and got into all kinds of scrapes and trouble and, and yet he came back. And in fact, when she opened the door, she didn't have to chase him. He came right in, which means that he knows where it's good, Right. He knows where he's got it good. He's, he knows that in, in our house, he's got three people who adore him and one who tolerates him. And he's like, yeah, as much as there's this part of me that's curious about what's outside, this is where I want to be. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I'm appealing to you because when you offer your body as a living sacrifice, you don't feel like a slave. You don't feel like a martyr. You don't feel like a prisoner. You feel like a beloved child. You feel like you've come home. And if you'll let me compare you to a cat, I know you'll let me say anything, but this is truth. This is truth. Paul isn't calling us to death. He's calling us to life. Because after all, we're offering ourselves to the one who offered himself for us, not as a living sacrifice, but as a dying sacrifice. If the God of the universe, 
who owns everything and can do anything and knows everything, if he loves you that much, is it really risky to offer yourself to him? I think it's the biggest no-brainer decision you'll ever make. And yet, most American Christians never really do it. Or if they do, they do it for a short period of time, their spiritual golden age, and then they wander away and become mediocre again. And that's why the church is in the shape it's in. And I would argue that's why society is in the shape it's in, because we're not being salt and light. So here's my challenge. Offer yourself to him today. Start your year by saying, Lord, I want to be completely yours. I want to be completely yours. Whatever you ask of me, the answer is always yes, or whatever words you want to use. And if you say, yeah, but I know I won't live up to that, join the club, all right? None of us will, but thank God, I fail a lot less than I used to because of that desire in my heart to be completely his. Express that to him. Offer him your body, your life today and every day as a living sacrifice. You won't regret it.